we've been in a conversation um, called Ready, where we're looking at what it means for us to be prepared for what lies ahead. And I don't know what's ahead, but I know a God who does. is the God of the future, and he's preparing you and I uh, to, to, to get to wherever we're going, whatever tomorrow uh, holds for us. God's preparing us today to get there. And uh, what's been fascinating for us is as we look at what it means for us to get ready, uh, what I know about being prepared is that it creates expectation. So uh, you're going to go on a trip, vacation, uh, you got to pack, you're getting ready. Like for us, we've got like animals that somebody has to feed. Like there's just stuff that has to happen. And in your packing and in your preparation, there's this anticipation. And so as we're preparing and we're talking about the armor and what, what God wants us to put on every day, I wanted to inspire some, uh, some uh, excitement inside of you that often when we think of the future and I go, hey, we don't know what lies ahead, we go, uh-oh. I don't know what awaits you and I. We go, great. What bill's coming? What health problem am I going to have? What, what issues are going to await us? But why can't we look at the future with excitement? What good does God have in store for you and I ahead that he wants to prepare for us to receive, right? Anybody think about winning the lottery this past week? You don't have to admit it in this room, but we've all thought about it. But you know you wouldn't be prepared for a billion dollars? I mean, I'd like to figure it out, but I wouldn't be prepared for a billion dollars, see, I believe God has so much good in store for us that many of us were not prepared for it. And it would be squandered, it would be wasted if our lives are not prepared and ready for what God is, wants to give us. Then uh, what happens is we receive the blessings of the Lord, we get whatever it is that he has for us, and we just waste it. And I don't want us to waste anything. I want us to be prepared for what God wants to do. And what we realize is in Ephesians Paul's readying our hearts. He's steadying our feet and he's readying our hearts and he's saying, God wants to do something. But the enemy is there too. And the enemy's coming and he articulates who the enemy is and, and what we need to do to watch for the enemy. But God's also waiting and he's writing from prison. And I don't know if you've spent time in prison uh, or not. I, I have not to date, so uh, it's still an option. But I've not spent time in prison. But I can imagine there's a lot of introspection. There's a lot of opportunity for you to go, what is life, you know? What is the church? I've seen the meme that says, uh, if Paul saw the state of the church today, we'd be getting a letter. Uh, we got a letter. It's here. And, uh, and he's in prison, and he's going, man, some things are wrong. Some things are broken. Some people aren't ready. And he's writing to you and I today, not in prison, and he's saying, get ready. Get ready. There's an enemy, and he's a real and present enemy. There's a danger that awaits us, but there's blessings too, and the enemy wants to thwart that that blessing, but we're not going to let him because we're prepared. And so Ephesians 6 talks of, uh, with military language. And, and I get, I don't get excited about fighting and military and, and you know, there's, a, there's this weird tension inside of me. But what I do realize is that Paul is talking of the armor because the armor was something that related to everyone. Regardless of the culture that he's speaking to and the generation that he's talking to, armor was relatable. Whether uh, societies were having people in armor come and attack them, or they were physically getting armor on to attack or to defend, armor was a relatable language. Even today, thousands of years later, we can say helmet, and we go, yeah, I know what that is. We can say sandals, and I know what those are. And we can say breastplate, and we know what that is. And, and where we might say chacos, and we might say Kevlar, like, it's still relatable to us. And so last week, Paul says, you've got to have the belt of truth. 
The belt of truth is essential. Without truth, nothing else matters. And we talked about what that looks like. It's online if you want to go back and look at that. But this morning, he's going to move us forward in our conversation. And he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. I don't know how many of you needed his mighty power this week. Uh, I did and still do. It's in his mighty power that we put on the full armor of God so that you can take a stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, as we would imagine, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, not just stand, but stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, in righteousness like armor on your chest. He's moving us to the second piece of of armor that we need that is essential. And to understand the concept of of the armor of God, we need to realize that Paul is referencing uh, a prophecy in Isaiah. Isaiah 11 says righteousness will be his belt of faithfulness, the sash around his waist, that he's borrowing from Isaiah. He's borrowing from the prophecies, and he's bringing them here to you and I, and he's saying, This is essential. This is important. When we look at armor, we realize that all armor has purpose. Everything has intentionality. It's to protect. And and Paul is describing the breastplate, which is an essential uh, piece of armor. He's saying this is something that uh, a typical soldier would have worn. It could be chain mail, or uh, it it could be some kind of bronze, or, or something that's covering vital organs. A lot of times, they would come down almost to the thigh to protect this entire area. You've got your liver and your kidneys probably somewhere and your spleen and your lungs and I think I'm pointing to the right areas, your heart. And so we have these vital organs that are being covered. And without it and you go into combat, you're an easy target. You're going to fall fast. You're going to have all of your vital organs easily exposed. And he's saying we've got to have the breastplate of righteousness. But it's not enough just to have the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate will often have large areas for the belt, not like a belt like you and I wear, but like a, a belt that would go through the breastplate and they would cinch it together tight so it fit tight to your chest so there wasn't anything loose and hanging so you weren't exposed in areas that you didn't expect to be exposed in. That without the belt, the breastplate really wasn't an efficient uh, armor. Without the belt, the breastplate was really unimportant. And what I realize is when we look at the breastplate as righteousness, and we look at the belt as truth, we realize truth and righteousness go hand in hand. Without truth, you have righteousness, which quickly turns to self-righteousness. When righteousness is rooted and grounded in what you believe, and what you like, and what you don't like, and what you want, and what you think is moral and immoral, when righteousness is rooted and grounded in anything other than the truth, then it's self-righteousness. With the belt pulled around, It turns from self-righteous armor to righteousness. That righteousness and truth must go hand in hand. The belt and the breastplate must be together. And we find that all the armor is essential, but it's only essential when we put it together. Apart, it's not as important. You can walk around with just a breastplate, and and you're going to be exposed everywhere, and it's not going to be important. You can walk around with just a belt, and it's not going to be vital. It's only when we piece it all together. It's only when we pull it all together, and the breastplate is described is this essential element that you and I need in order to fight 
the enemy, in order to stand. We're not even talking about fighting. We're just talking about standing against whatever the enemy throws your way. Righteousness is essential. But when we look at righteousness, we have to ask the question. Righteousness uh, is, is this idea that we are measured against a standard, right? Righteousness is this idea that you're measured against a standard. Without truth, what standard is that? Without truth and without a biblical standard, you and I are measured against a cultural standard. We're measured against a political standard. We're measured against whatever may await us around. And what I know about our culture is that it's constantly shifting. It's moving. It's going this way and that way. That the standard that you and I would live up to morally was different 50 years ago than it is today. In fact, it wasn't that long ago doctors were prescribing cigarettes. You know what I mean? So if we were to live by that standard, we would go, well, this, but we know new things, and we've changed, and so what's happening is culture is shifting and changing, and, it's, and we're adapting and adopting, and some things are good, and some things are not good, but the idea is that you and I have one standard that does not change. It's the same yesterday, it's the same today, and it will be the same forever. That when we realize we must be measured up against a standard in order to know if we were living in righteousness, we have to make sure that we're measuring ourselves against the appropriate standard. That if we do not have truth, the standard is up for debate, so righteousness and truth go hand in hand. They're walking closely together. Righteousness, in very short, is right living. So if you're like, I don't know if I'm righteous or not, are you living right? Against the scriptures and and, and the biblical morality, are you living right? Living a life that is pleasing and holy. And I realize that the challenge to live a, a righteous life is, it's difficult It feels a lot like you're being set up to fail. When being asked to live a holy and righteous life, it feels like you're being set up to fail because even Paul himself in Romans 3 says, there is no one righteous, no, not even one. When Paul says no one's righteous and then later says you've got to put on the breastplate of righteousness, he's saying, I recognize the tension. I recognize the challenge that's being put in front of all of us to live righteous knowing that No one is really righteous. In fact, Paul is actually quoting David from Psalms in Romans 3. So what we have is we have a saint writing the Bible, quoting a saint writing the Bible. That the standard seems unimaginably high. So what happens when the idea of righteousness comes up is we most often go, well, I'm going to try. I'll try to live right. I mean, maybe you're here your first time in church in a while, or maybe you're here all the time, or maybe you're watching online, you're like, I'll try. I'll give it a shot. We'll see how tomorrow goes. And then we try, and then we make mistakes. We say things we shouldn't have said. We do things we shouldn't have done. We, we slip up. We fall into sin. We sin. We, we make a mistake, and we go, that's it. I can't do it. I give up. I mean, can you imagine when you were little and you were being taught to walk, if you had fallen and just been like, this is, I'll just crawl for the rest of my life. Like, this is just how I will live now. I don't want to take the risk of falling again, so I'll just crawl. We'll figure something out. We don't see humans crawling unless it's like a creepy movie. We don't see humans crawling. And, and the reason is because we get back up. And when it comes to righteousness, we go, I'm going to try it. I fail. Forget it. It's unattainable. It's, it's something I can't even live up to. And then what we do is we go, well, churches are full of self-righteous people. So I don't want to be around them. Because they're just a bunch of people who pretend to be righteous and they're actually not righteous. They're living in sin and they won't admit it, which is why we want to create a space where we're honest about our flaws and our failures because we're all sinners. 
in thought, word, deed, and action. We all sin and fall short of God's glory. But the difference maker is that you and I, we get back up. We try to move again. We try to walk again. And a lot of times what happens is when we think righteousness is so impossible, we don't even attempt it. We're just giving in to uh, a life of sin, and we've not even uh, attempted to live like Christ. And, and what I know about righteousness is that first, we have to have this external standard in which we're to be measured by. Next, in order for this to work efficiently, we have to have a perfectly impartial judge. Someone to look at our lives and go, that was right, that was wrong. You're not that judge, nor am I. We need a perfectly impartial judge to, to gauge our life. And then what we have to have, which is essential, is we need a means to come back to that standard when we fall outside. So we need a standard. We need an impartial judge to let us know when we're not meeting the standard. But then we need a, a way to get back in right relationship again. And all of those things can be found in God. When we weigh this against culture, we realize that culture can give us a standard in which we can be measured by, but they cannot give us an impartial judge. Culture cannot give us a way back into right relationship again either. We see this in cancel culture. You're canceled, you're done. That's just it. There's no way to get back in right relationship with the standard. And if the standard's always moving and we don't have an impartial judge, then all of a sudden we realize we're chasing something that's not attainable. When we look at the scriptures, and we recognize what God has done for us through the person of Jesus, we have a standard. We have an impartial judge, but we have an impartial judge who loves us unconditionally, who's given us his only son, which is the means and the pathway back to righteousness. And so when we think living like God has called me to live is impossible, try another way. Try something else and see how long that works because it's misery. What I know about God is though it does seem like it's a challenge to obtain it. Perfection is not the goal. Pursuit of God is. And when we make perfection the goal, we get frustrated, we get disappointed, we give up. But when pursuit of God is the goal, getting better day by day, having a little more faith, we take a step back, we take two forward, we take ground, we charge, we keep getting back up, we stand. Then we begin to realize God hasn't set up to, us up to fail. He's with us. And he's for us. And for you and I to have Christ as our standard is an opportunity for us to keep growing in our faith, growing in our lives. We never get to a point where we stop. There's no enlightenment here. There's no perfection that you and I continue to uh, move closer to God on a consistent basis. But you ever, ever seen somebody that just makes it look easy? It makes being a Christian look easy. I was... Uh, I was about 18, maybe 19. I could have been 20, possibly 17, but most likely 18. And uh, uh, we hiked Pikes Peak. It's like 14,000 foot summit. And there was a group of us. And we had oxygen and like had all the gear. And like we got there a few days early and started like trying to get, you know, acclimated to the, to the elevation. And so we get up at like four in the morning because it's a, it's a long hike. It's going to take us a while. We're not, you know, necessarily savvy hikers. And so we start up the hill and I don't know, we're maybe a, a thousand foot elevation and, and I hear noise and I look back and there's somebody running. I'm like, is there like a cougar or mountain lion? Like I didn't do the research. Are there bears? Should I run too? And, 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 I, and I see someone else running. There's like multiple people. And I'm like, they're doing this for fun. Like this is their sport. I'm struggling and we get another few feet, you know, probably 500 feet, and I see someone biking. Like I knew the term mountain biking, but I didn't think it existed. I thought it was just a sales term. They're biking on a mountain. What was really challenging for me was effortless for others. 
And what a lot of us do when it comes to righteousness is we go, this is tough. I'm going to look at everybody else. And what we do so well is instead of being honest, we put a picture of ourselves online that says everything's wonderful and I'm fine and we're good. And all of a sudden, we're presenting ourselves as righteous because we are stereotypical Christians. We can't look like we have flaws or failures or mistakes. We can't get divorces or have cancer. We can't have problems. So we're presenting ourselves as if everything is great and, and others are looking at this or maybe we're on the other side of that. And all of a sudden, what we start doing is we start comparing ourselves to others. And when we compare ourselves to others when it comes to righteousness, what we're doing is we're taking the standard that scriptures have set, and Jesus Christ is our example, and we're reducing it down to you and I. Well, I may not be able to live like Christ, but I can live a lot better than John. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I can do some things better than John. He can do things better than me. So I got some work to do, and all of a sudden I stop measuring myself against the standard of Christ and scriptures, and I start measuring myself against the standard of others And this comparison game starts to tear us up. Now what happens is when we compare, we either become prideful. Oh, I'm a lot more righteous than he is. I would have never made that choice. And then we get prideful, right? Or the opposite is, oh, I can never be like him. He's just perfect, man. He reads his Bible every day and doing everything right. And And so we start to become self-deprecating. You and I are not the standard. As much as we try to make one another the standard, we're not the standard. We're to spur one another on to greatness. Iron sharpens iron. We're to make one another better. And that's part of the community that we have here is no one's reached uh, perfection. No one's reached the end. We're all charging one another to be better and more like Christ in a wholesome and, and healthy way. We go, we're not perfect, but we're not comparing. We're not competing. What happens when we compete is we start to become carbon copies of each other, only slightly worse. If you've ever been to a wax museum, at first you're like, oh, is that the real? No, George Clooney's not here. You know, it's not the real thing. You get closer, you realize real fast that's not even, that's not even close, right? If you actually knew him, like, I don't. But, you know, if you knew him, you'd be like, that doesn't even look anything like him. And what happens when we're Christians and we model ourselves after other Christians, we're carbon copying, we're getting slightly worse, and we end up with a Christian culture, a society of people that have caved so many times, it may have been small ways, that we've dumbed down the gospel to where we're no longer allowing it to be our measuring stick. So we don't have to try anymore. I mean, I've already reached, you know, your status, so why should I try to be any better than that? I'm already not making mistakes like you are, so I'm clearly done. And we stop moving closer to Christ. We stop growing in our relationship with God. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we face as a, as a church in general, not this church per se, but all churches, that if we're in church and we're here on a regular basis, we stop. And because Christ is our example, there's no space to stop. You may love most everybody. Well, let's love a few more people. You may give. Let's give a little more. And it's not that the, the stick keeps moving, right? It's not a carrot. God's not a cruel God dangling a carrot in front of us to see how far we'll go until we quit. It's that he loves you so much he's never done with you. He's never done with us. He's working in us and he's working through us and he's using life circumstances, hard circumstances, good circumstances to mold us and to shape us. And I love that God's not done with me. I love that he's not like, well, I've reached perfection with you. I'm going to move on to you. No, God keeps saying, let's work. Let's move. But here's what I need you to know is work does not save us. Work is not where our salvation comes from. We are saved by grace. We are saved by the unmerited favor of God through the person of Jesus. So all of our efforts are not to earn salvation. All of our efforts 
are because Christ has died for us. And for you and I, the goal is then to become like Christ. We need to pursue being like Christ. We've been asked to live our lives like the most holy person on the planet, so good luck with that. But we haven't been asked to live like Christ without his strength. Even Paul is saying it's in God's strength that we do this. In your strength, we fail. We make mistakes. We mess up. In God's strength, we have the ability to get back up and move again and stand again. He's not even inviting us to move. He's just inviting us to stand. When we've done everything else, stand. It's through Christ's strength that we're able to stand. That external standard is Christ. And and so we don't make any mistake about it. This is not a denomination. This is not a pastor, as great as he might be. This is not another Christian. This is Christ and Christ alone. He is our standard. And we've been invited to model him, not be a God, but pursue being like God. And in Ephesians 5 says, therefore be imitators of God, as dearly loved children. This, I like this because when my kids were really little, they want to be like you, right? If you've got little kids or whatever, like they want to be like you. They want to wear your shoes and your hat. They, not so much anymore. I mean, parts maybe. But they imitate you. They, 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 they naturally, even now, they naturally bring things out that, that you know are you. Like I'll hear them say things. I'm like, I don't like that. I'm like, but I probably say things like that too. You know, like they're imitating me. They don't want to be me. But parts of them are just because there's a closeness. We're there together every day all the time. There's this closeness and there's a natural attrition where they become like me and, and, and Margie. If you and I will gravitate towards God, if we'll get closer to God, it'll start to rub off. We'll start to become more like God. We'll start to be imitators of Christ. He says, like children and walk. He gives us the pathway to how to do that. He says, and walk in love as the Messiah also loved us and he gave himself for us, a sacrifice and a fragrant offering to God. He's saying, be imitators of me. And this is how it starts starts with love. Starts to love and sacrifice. And then he goes on and he gets a little tougher for us in verse 3. He says, but sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for saints. Coarse and foolish talk or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks For know and recognize this, every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of the Messiah and of God. It's a little tougher. He's given us an example of some of the things that should be reflective of those of us who are living righteously. What does it look like to live righteously? The scripture starts to give us these examples we're not sexually immoral. We're not greedy. We're not idolaters. We're minding our uh, tongue. We're, we're watching how and who we love. There are some things that, that, that are very clear that help us understand, are we going this way or are we going this way? And a lot of Christians, we tend to look at other Christians and go, well, what are they doing? And as we're carbon copying one another, slightly getting it worse, we go, well, I can talk like that because he talks like that. Or I can watch that because he watches that. Or I can do that because he does that. And we start dumbing down the standard so that we feel good. I've obtained this standard. If you've ever played the telephone game, right, where I whisper something over here and then you pass it around, it's always fun to hear what it's like over here. It's not fun when it's in real life and it's gossip, right? But it's fun in a game. 
The idea is uh, followers of Christ. We start imitating one another on and on and all the way down to where it doesn't even look like Christianity anymore. I mean, I see things and I hear things that are happening in the Christian culture, and I go, how, that's not even, how do you even get in there? That's not scripture. This is counterintuitive, actually, to scripture, but it's being presented as scripture because the standard in which we're measured by is now being reduced and it's being lowered, and it is possible to live a holy life, but it's impossible to live a holy life that's not rooted and grounded in God's word. So if you say, I don't really love to read my Bible, then the standard for your life and mine will deviate very quickly. That we must fall in love with God and we must immerse ourselves in his word. And I have a lot of room to grow in that area. So I'm not telling you something I don't need in my own life, right? I'm not like logging several hours of scripture reading and saying you should do this too. What I'm saying is I struggle. And the more I struggle in scripture, the more I deviate from God's word because we don't know God's word. And we have to live a life in constant pursuit of Christ. And the closer we get to him the more we become uh, righteous. This relentless pursuit of righteousness, this long obedience in the same direction where we go, I'm gonna keep moving closer to God. But when we compare our lives to others around us, uh, we, we're reducing what God has called us to do. It's about pursuing a relationship with God. Righteousness means that we strive to be more like Christ. The second thing is that we have to make right choices. In order to be righteous, we have to be willing to make the right choices. We're not saved by our works, but our works are what define us. Our works are what move us closer or further away from Christ and what happens so often in our lives, and this is fleshed out in practicality and, and spirituality, is that we often make decisions that just move us 1% one way or the other. And we don't really notice, we don't recognize it. Same with habits, if you've read Atomic Habits, it's the same concept, it's this idea that if you and I can just make 1% better choices over the long haul, we become more like our goal or more like we want to become. But if we're unintentional about the choices we make, 1% can deviate and over the long haul, it can move us away from our goal. So if our goal is to be righteous and Christ is our standard and the scriptures are the method and the model in which we uh, live by, our choices become essential. And so you may ask yourself, should I buy this? Should I say this? Should I be like this? And it may be 1%, but over time, we move this way, or we move this way. And what happens for us is that sin sneaks in so slowly and so subtly that what we couldn't imagine all of a sudden becomes commonplace. And it's because of that 1%. I'll make a choice, a small choice. It's not a big deal. I'll just do it this one time, and then all of a sudden, you're moving this way, and three years later, you're still doing that, and we're over here. And then we look up and we realize we've strayed from the path of righteousness. And you and I have been instructed to put on this armor, which implies that we don't already have it on, meaning the first choice that we must make before our feet even hit the bed, uh, floor, wherever you, I don't know how you get up, but your feet hit the floor, should be to put on the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, the sandals of peace, the sword, the sword and the shield. Like, we should walk through these things, if not just mentally to go, I want to be prepared for what happens. That is the first choice we make is we wake up and we go, I want to be more like Christ today. I want that to be a goal today. So then when we set that as our goal, it informs our decisions. Coworker comes, they're mad at you, you know, you didn't do anything, you did do something, who knows. How you treat them then determines your goal. It may be small, it may just be a look, it may be a, a, something super sarcastic, I don't know, but it's, it's moving, it's moving us. But if our goal is here, it informs the decisions that we make. No different than if you, your goal is to lose weight, then you're going to change your dieting habits. You're going to change how you eat. 
in theory. There's this idea, though, that if we want to be more like Christ, we have to be more intentional about the decisions that we make. It doesn't save us, but it changes how we relate to one another and how we relate to Christ. And our nation is, is, is rarely passionate about morality. You've noticed They're not passionate about morality. In fact, immorality seems to be at the forefront of of everything that we see. And so it's essential that you and I are careful as we move forward. That we don't allow immorality to filter into our lives to where it changes our decisions and it changes our behavior and it changes what we believe is right and and what is wrong. And what was once taboo is now commonplace. And, And if you can look at your life and go, I can't ever imagine that I would have ever done that, but you're doing it. God wants us to give that to him. He wants us to repent, turn from our ways, and and come back to him. And it changes the trajectory of our lives over a long haul. And there's there's not any area of our life that the Bible doesn't explicitly have say in. So if you're curious about what God wants for your life, the scriptures are where we go every single time. That the Bible sets the standard for sexual conduct and for healthy marriage and for strong finances and disciplining your kids and healthy eating and how you conduct yourself in society and on and on and on. It is the standard by which we live by. And when we stop living by the Bible, we start living by some other standard. So righteousness is a choice to flee from sin and to pursue our creator. In 2 Corinthians 7, it says, Therefore, dear friends, since we have such promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit, completing our sanctification in God. This is inviting us into repentance, which is twofold. It's turning from sin, but it's also turning towards God. A lot of us are okay with turning from sin. I made that choice, it got me in trouble, now I'm in jail, I should probably turn from that, make a different choice. A lot of us, though, we break down when it is turning towards God. It's not just rejecting sin, it's not just turning away from sin, but it's actually turning towards a standard, which is God. It's turning towards God and going, yeah, I made that mistake, I've paid that price, now I'm going to turn towards God. And watch how the trajectory of my life is changed. We make a clean break from our past, but then we pursue God with our intention and our ability. And on paper, this seems simple, but in practicality, it's greatly challenging. And so God keeps giving us strength because righteousness is possible through God. It is possible through God if we will pursue becoming like Christ and we will understand that that God has a design for us and he gives us strength then we realize that righteousness is possible through God, that we have an external standard in which we can be measured by, that's God. We have an impartial judge who loves us unconditionally, but he loves you so much he's not going to let sin pass in our lives, and so he's going to call us for it. But he also gives us a pathway to pursue forgiveness, repentance, and to make things right. And in 2 Timothy 1, it says, He has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. In this passage, Paul is summarizing the whole gospel. He's saying God loves us, and he's called us, and he's sent Christ to die for us. We have an eternal life through faith in him. We cannot be good enough to deserve salvation. So if you've tried, you understand how exhausting it is. But if we'll rest in Christ, lean on grace, and make good choices as often as we possibly can, watch how holiness becomes uh, uh, more of an option for you and I. That holiness is not about a given set of rules to follow. It's not a, a checklist. When we fall in love with God, though, we desire to live like him and live like he's called us to live. So it's not about being a rule follower. I love following rules. 
Uh, I'm a good rule follower, I think. I'm a, a very good rule follower, a rule-following savant. But it's not about following more rules. It's about falling more in love with God. And watch as a natural byproduct that you begin to imitate Christ because the, you become closer to him. That we must allow God to chisel away and to shape us into holy and righteous people. That righteousness ultimately cannot be achieved through our own efforts. But we are imperfect people made holy through a relationship with a perfect God. And we struggle with trying to be good enough. And often it's our efforts that are hurting us. God's saying, rest in me. Rest in me. And in Mark 2 it says, when the scribes of the Pharisees, they saw Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus heard this and he told them, those who are well don't need a doctor, but the sick do need one. I didn't come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. Christ is for you and I. He's for us. Jesus didn't die on the cross for the perfect. He came for the imperfect. And we don't and we won't deserve God's grace, but that's what makes it grace. That righteousness starts with a relationship with God. And the thing about the breastplate of righteousness and really all of the armor is that it's not your breastplate. It's not your righteousness. God is not expecting you to be armed against the enemy with armor of your own making. And I think that's the problem with so many of us as we try to go against the enemy with armor in our own making, our own righteousness, our own uh, truth, and we come up short and, and we are made righteous through faith. God has given us the armor to put on. The question for you and I is, will we take it? Will we put it on? Will we make a conscious decision daily to go, I want to walk in righteousness. My end goal is to be more like Christ. I want to be more compassionate. And I want to be more loving. And I want to be more full of grace. If we want to be that person, then we must pursue Christ. As our example, as our model, reject sin, turn towards God. If you would bow your head and close your eyes this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you in this moment. And we just admit that we're sinners in thought, word, deed, and action. We're sinners by things we've said and done. We're sinners by things we should have said and should have done. We're imperfect at best, but perfection is not the goal. But pursuing you is. So God, some of us, we've fallen down. So we're asking that in your strength we can get back up. And that we could stand. We could stand against the, the enemy's tactics. That we could stop falling for the same tricks. That we can stop making the same bad decisions. Because the enemy doesn't change. So maybe reject the enemy. Reject the sin that is so enticing. And turn towards you. And in the pursuit of you, Father. May we become more righteous. So God, we thank you. We thank you that you love us enough to keep calling us back to you. You don't leave any of us to fend for ourselves but you keep calling us to you. So we praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' mighty name.